Hello everyone, my name is Bill Combs. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Bible Church. And this is uh, the first session in a new class on 1 Corinthians, uh, calling it Life in the Local Church, 1 Corinthians. And so we want to begin tonight, and uh, this will be a class that runs actually through the entire year. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this time this evening that we have to look into the Word of God. And we ask that uh, the Holy Spirit will uh, illuminate our minds to the truth of God's Word as we study it, think about it, meditate on it. We pray that we'll be able to uh, understand your will for the church and we'll, as we look at these various issues in the church at Corinth, it will enable us to uh, modify our own thinking and enable us to behave properly here in our own local church. And we pray that it will contribute to our own spiritual growth as we go week by week through the book of 1 Corinthians. So bless our time together as we begin tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin by just uh, saying, uh, talking about how 1 Corinthians fits into the Bible. Uh, we know that there are 66 books in the Bible, and 27 of those make up the New Testament. And if we divide those up, we have uh, the four Gospels, and we have the book of Acts, that's five, and the book of Revelation, the, uh, 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 that's six. So that leaves us 21 other books. And these are usually called letters or epistles. And 13 of those are called the Pauline or Pauline epistles. Uh, at least there are 13 of them that have uh, Paul's name on them. And so we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians tonight. Uh, the books in the New Testament, the Paul's epistles, are arranged uh, by length. So the first Pauline epistle after the book of Acts is Romans, and then the next one is 1 Corinthians, and that's really by length. Romans and 1 Corinthians are very similar in length, but Romans is just a little bit longer than 1 Corinthians. And so that's how they're, they're arranged. I mentioned here in the introduction uh, that... Paul is the author of this epistle. It names him as the author. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, this is the well-known Paul from the book of Acts who wrote, as I said, 13 books of the New Testament. And here are those 13 books attributed to him. And we kind of have the, uh, where they were written from and when, as best we can, can know. Uh, and we see that 1 Corinthians, although it's the second Pauline epistle in the New Testament, it's not the first, uh, second book he wrote. Uh, in order of chronology, Galatians is the first book he wrote that we have in the New Testament, then 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 Corinthians. And so uh, Romans actually comes later. 1 and 2 Corinthians are back to back. We want to begin by looking a little bit uh, of background information this evening. We'll look first of all at the city of Corinth. Um, Corinth, of course, is in 
what we call Greece today. And uh, I've just put up a modern map of Europe there so you can see the various countries, Turkey, and then Greece, and the circle there is, is around where kind of Corinth is, Athens is, and so forth. Then if you compare that with the ancient map, you see where Corinth is in relation to other parts of the ancient world. And there are other cities uh, that we're familiar with in the New Testament, like Corinth and Philippi up in Macedonia, Ephesus, which we'll talk about some here now tonight, and Antioch, which is Paul's base church, from which he begins his three missionary journeys, and then Jerusalem, of course, the mother church there. So these are important cities. Um, and uh, there's Corinth again. So uh, I mentioned here the location. Uh, the southern end of Greece is almost an island, a narrow isthmus, um, a narrow strip of land averaging four miles wide separates this peninsula. This peninsula is often called the Peloponnese or the Peloponnesus from the mainland of Greece. And on the southern end of that isthmus, at, a, at the foot of a 1,900-foot mountain called Acrocorinth, is the site of ancient Corinth. And so uh, we're talking about this strip of land here. I'm going to move over to point this out. So we're talking about this is the, the peninsula. That is, a peninsula is a body that's surrounded on three sides by water. And then there's a strip of land that connects it. If it wasn't for this, this would be an island here. And here's Corinth, which is right at the, where, this, where you come through here. If you come through, you're going to come right to Corinth. So you can see it could become an important commercial center from just its location there. Um, it, uh, this is a, a drawing uh, giving a kind of a close-up of the what we might call the metropolitan area of uh, Corinth. Um, and uh, you can see that there are other suburbs there, uh, other cities, other little small towns, Lechium and Sincrea being most important. And you can see that, you know, when we move back to our map here, uh, here's the Aegean Sea over here, and this is called the Gulf of Corinth in here, that body water. They become important bodies of water uh, because um, uh, as people travel, they, they, Corinth becomes a destination. And so I'm, I'm going to be talking about the Aegean, the Mediterranean over here, and the Gulf of Corinth, which leads over here to the Adriatic and ultimately to Italy. So um, you've got uh, Corinth there, which is the main city, Sincrea. You've got Ismia, a small location there. That dotted line that you see beside Ismia is the location of a modern canal that's been cut through uh, the isthmus there. Um, here we're looking from that mountain called Acrocorinth, uh, and you can see on the right, uh, Sincrea, 
and on the left, Lechium. I'll go back to there, you see. So we're sort of standing here at Corinth, and we're looking this way, and we see the Aegean Sea over here, and we see the Gulf of Corinth over here in this particular picture. We see the isthmus, a little bit of the isthmus there. It's uh, compressed, but uh, those are the two main ports for Corinth, one leading to the Aegean, one leading to the Gulf of Corinth. Here's a uh, kind of diagram of ancient Corinth, a little close up. You can see that there are roads leading out of the main city going north to Lechium, to the port there. There are roads going to Sincrea, Mycia, here. Here's that mountain we talked about, 1900 foot mountain, uh, Acro Corinth. And we'll say more, about, say more about that as we go along here. There's that mountain, so we're looking from Corinth up there to, the, to Acro-Corinth. Um, so uh, let's talk about the history here a little bit. Uh, I say it's one of the oldest Greek cities, but the Romans plundered and destroyed Corinth in 146, killing all the males, selling the women and children into slavery. So uh, as we look, you know, back at uh, maybe this diagram here, you know, we can see that, uh, I'll mention that in the 4th century B.C., a man named Alexander the Great uh, conquered all of Greece. Uh, he conquered all of this territory and unified it. Uh, before his time, uh, these were just, we talk about Greece, but there was no nation of Greece. There was just a number of individual city-states like Corinth and Athens uh, and Sparta. And these city-states uh, were just independent entities. They had their own government, and they sometimes fought among themselves. As Rome became much more powerful and started conquering territory, uh, they conquered north of, north, northern part of Africa in the 3rd century B.C. in a series of war um, uh, in the Punic Wars, they, as, as they're described, uh, with Carthage. And then in the 2nd century B.C., the time we're talking about here, in the 170s, 60s, 50s, 40s, the uh, Romans conquer Greece, Macedonia, Thrace, all this area, and they, they unify together, they create provinces and so forth. But when, they, when, they, when the Romans marched in, the, the city of Corinth um, fought them and would not surrender. So uh, Julius Caesar uh, destroyed the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Romans destroyed this city in 146 B.C. And uh, when they take over a city like that, that means they own everything. They take it over, they own it, everybody's displaced. Here they, they, they killed the males, sold the women and children to slavery, so there wasn't much left there. Then a hundred years later, uh, Julius Caesar, the man who became dictator of Rome, 
in the first century BC, uh, he uh, had the city rebuilt as a Roman colony. And a Roman colony is simply a, like a little part of Rome outside of Rome. And the people who were in this colony when it was established had the rights of Romans. They were Roman citizens. And these were almost always soldiers. So the Roman army had a lot of soldiers. When they retired, they didn't want them coming back into the capital, back into Rome. So they would often uh, uh, provide colonies. They would provide uh, land for these retired men. They would give them free land. They would come into this area. They would rebuild the city. Uh, they would have the rights of Romans and so forth. There would be other people there, Greeks and others, who wouldn't have those rights, who would live there, but these, the Romans who lived there would have, would have citizenship and so forth. So it gets rebuilt in, in 100 years later by, by Julius Caesar. Then in 27 B.C., after Caesar, uh, his nephew Augustus, becomes the ruler, he becomes the first emperor of Rome, uh, Augustus Caesar, and he made Corinth the capital of the province of Achaia. You can see on the map there, uh, there's a line here separating uh, Achaia from Macedonia here, Philippi, Thessalonica. Um, and he uh, creates Achaia as a province, a Roman province, ruled by a Roman governor that we'll see later on here. And uh, Corinth is the capital. Um, so Corinth, as I say, was in Greece, but it was a Roman city, though with a lot of Greek influence. And Greek influence, especially in terms of language. So even though uh, when I was in high school, I took Latin. I took a lot of Latin. And uh, when I became a Christian, one of the things that troubled me or I couldn't figure out was if Latin was the language of the Roman Empire and Jesus was born during the Roman Empire and the church was established, why wasn't the New Testament written in Latin? I mean, that's the language of the empire. Well, not really. The language of the empire was really Greek. Alexander the Greek in the 4th century had spread Greek culture and Greek language. It had been adopted. Rome conquers these places, but it's not immediate that the people adopted Greek. In fact, even Romans mostly spoke Greek. In the city of Rome, uh, the famous senator and statesman Cicero complained that more people spoke Greek than they spoke Latin in the capital city. And all educated Romans would know Greek. They studied in, in, in their textbooks and stuff. They would study Greek, uh, Greek history and literature and so forth. So... When Paul writes his epistles, when the other New Testament writers write their epistles, they're writing in Greek because that's the language that most people universally spoke. And so Corinth, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, but he's writing to a Roman colony, officially a Roman city, but still Greek is the dominant culture, the dominant language, and so he writes in Greek. Let's talk about commerce here a little bit. Uh, because of its strategic location, remember I've talked about that, between the Aegean and the Gulf of Corinth, uh, uh, it was the, uh, it, uh, it, it's called wealthy Corinth, a lot of commerce. 
It was the center of commerce between the mainland and the southern peninsula. You had to go through that isthmus and get down to, if you want to go to Sparta, you had to come through Corinth there. Uh, it commanded trade between Asia and Italy. Uh, that's because people didn't like to get out in the Mediterranean and uh, try to uh, travel. They, they didn't want to come around here and get out into the open Mediterranean, so they would often come here, unload their cargo, get a new ship, and come along here. They liked to try to hug the coast and stay close to the close coast as they were traveling. So, uh, so one way was to go to Corinth and to stop there and unload your cargo uh, and move it over to another ship and then let it go up the coast there and cross the, uh, just the water there to Rome. So uh, it was just an important place, as we say, of commerce. Uh, it had two ports that it controlled, Lechium, two miles north of the, on the Corinthian Gulf, which led to Italy, and Sincrea, five miles to the east on the Saronic Gulf, which led to Asia. Um, so here is uh, the Corinthian excavations, that is what's left of the uh, city of Corinth. Um, you can see certain things are pointed out there, the Temple of Apollo, Lechium Road, we'll see that. So that's what's left, not much, of the ancient city. You can see on the left here the Temple of Apollo, and this is a road leading north to Lechium that I showed you on that other map, what's left of it. And, and here is the Forum right here, uh, right in here are the central marketplace, the Agora, the Forum. Rome, Roman cities always had a rectangular, usually, uh, kind of central location uh, where the shops and municipal buildings were located, a Forum or a Agora. You can see this diagram, this diagram, this drawing of probably what it looked like. There was a lot of temples there. Uh, archaeologists say they found remains of 26 temples or other sacred places where people prayed and sacrificed, like the Temple of Apollo and others. Um, there's the Agora or the marketplace. They see that Bema there. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment, which is a place of a government business and, and judgment. Um, there's the... Uh, Temple of Apollo, built around 540 B.C., and that part is still standing, amazingly. So the Romans, when they came in, they didn't destroy the Temple of Apollo because they worshipped Apollo. The Romans uh, adopted the Greek religion, that is, the Greek gods. They gave them different names. So the, Roman, the, the head of the, the Greek pantheon was Zeus. The Romans called him Jupiter. Uh, so they had uh, the same gods, Sometimes they gave them different names. So they didn't destroy, the Romans didn't destroy that temple when Julius, when they, in 146, they didn't touch that. But it's got destroyed over wars over time and so forth. There's the temple of Apollo and Acro-Corinth, that mountain on the north of it where there was a temple. We'll talk about that. There's the Lechium Road. Some, you can see it was a paved road, very nicely paved in its day. 
It had columns uh, on the side of it that went up and so forth. Uh, there's a kind of a beautiful mosaic that's left there. There's a, how shops were in the forum. There were these sort of shops you'd go in and buy things, uh, trade and so forth. Here's that Bema we talked about. Uh, Paul talks about we must all appear before the judgment seat. Sometimes you'll hear a preacher say we have to all appear before the Bema or the Greek pronounces Bema, but Bema, seat of Christ. So Paul uses that imagery because he had to appear before this particular one in Corinth to face judgment. And so it's a place of judgment, and Paul says we'll have to stand before one day the judgment seat of Christ, not the judgment seat of the governor here. And uh, so... Um, here is, uh, again, that location we're talking about. Now, that dotted line there, uh, there's the road, the road. And here is uh, this canal. There's a canal that they dug in there. I'll show you. There's the canal. The canal is uh, uh, a four-mile. That's four miles about through there that was dug. And um, it's 70-foot uh, wide. So it's not wide enough for really big ships. That 70 foot may seem wide, but uh, ships are, modern cargo ships are bigger than that, tankers, so some ships can get through. It was dug in 1893, and uh, so it's, it's helpful. It does cut off time for, pe for, for people to get uh, uh, through there rather than going around the, going around the, uh, the peninsula there, the Peloponnesus. And there's a kind of picture of a ship going through, eastern end of the canal. There we're showing the, uh, the dotted line show where that canal is and so forth. So it uh, may seem strange, but it's actually, these, this cape around here is, is pretty dangerous to, to go around here. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the, down in South America, the, the cape there, it's rough waters to get around there and so forth. So they would rather not do that, believe it or not. And uh, so here, here is uh, something alongside the canal. This is, a, this is a, a roadway that was built alongside the canal so that ships could dock and unload their cargo if they wanted to and transfer it to another ship. We are told that actually small ships <clears throat> could actually be put, could be rolled on rollers over to the other side, small boats. But often cargo would be unloaded and transported to another ship. This is, the Greek word is dialkos. And so this is right beside the canal there. Uh, and of course the canal was there. This is an ancient, this is an ancient uh, roadway or path. And this Diokos uh, goes it's there in Paul's time. Uh, so it's before the canal. And so that's what the commercial people used often to transfer their goods. There's another view of it. Let's talk about the inhabitants here. The population in Paul's day was quite cosmopolitan. Uh, but Roman colonists made up the majority. Other nationalities included 
native Greeks as well as a large colony of Jews. It's estimated the population of the metropolitan area in Paul's day was about 100,000. These are rough estimates. We know many of these people were slaves. There were slaves in every city of the Roman Empire. And this made this Corinth a very large city, the largest, we're told, in Roman Greece. Uh, of all the Greek cities, Corinth is the largest city. As far as culture, the city cultivated various arts, famous for its pottery, brass, and architecture. Uh, there were, you know, Corinthian-made doors, we're told, in Jerusalem, in the temple, uh, we're told. So very popular for this brass, uh, pottery, brass work and so forth. Every two years, uh, the Isthmian Games were held uh, in Isthmia. Uh, the Olympic Games were held in Olympia in Greece every four years, and they were the biggest and most spectacular. But there were games held every two years at Isthmia, which is that suburb of Corinth. And when people came there, they usually lived, stayed in tents. If they came from out, you know, a distance, they would stay in tents. And remember, Paul is described as a tent maker himself. And the Isthmian Games were celebrated in A.D. 51, and we believe Paul was there between 50 and 52. He came in the spring, I mean the fall probably of A.D. 50. He left in the spring of 52. I'll talk about that in a moment. And so he may have been there during the games. Remember, he uses allusions to the games in his epistles. He talks about you know, beating the air and boxing, fighting, 1 Corinthians 9. So uh, he uses those illusions, and uh, he may have been, you know, he may have been involved in commerce there, re directly related to the games. Uh, what about? Uh, I was going to show you a few slides here of Isthmia. So there's a temple of Poseidon. What's left of it? Poseidon, you remember the the god of the sea, uh, the brother of Zeus. Um, there's a sanctuary there. So in all these, there was no separation, remember, of church and state or religion and state in the world, <laughs> in the ancient world, in the European world, and <laughs> the United States is kind of the exception of the rule here because, you know, even in England, the new king, King Charles, is the supreme governor of the Church of England. So... The official church of, of, the, of, of England is the Church of England. Uh, and so in, in the world, up until relatively modern times, you always had a, a religion associated with a city or a state or a country, and usually you were required to adopt that religion. And in the ancient world, you were, there, was not, there was some freedom uh, Christians will eventually be persecuted because they're not pagans. Uh, you know, they, they, we see some of that in the first century, individual persecution. But once you get to the second century, it becomes statewide Roman persecution of Christians as a whole. But these places all had pagan sanctuaries. Here's the starting line uh, for the games. Here's some folks imitating that kind of at Isthmia. Uh, there's a bathhouse. Wherever there were Romans, there was always bathhouses. The Romans had to have their baths. They, they loved those. And so they had to pipe water in, build, build aqueducts, 
Herod the Great was, he considered himself a Roman, and he had aqueducts so he could have water at Masada. He had waters at Jericho, just desert places. Uh, it took tremendous effort to bring water to these places so he could have his baths. Here is uh, the top of the Acro-Corinth. Those fortifications are middle age, much later, 1,000, 1,500 years later. So they're not part of the, the area there. What we have, the temple of Aphrodite was there on that, uh, on that uh, location. Uh, I mentioned morals and religion here. Corinth had a reputation of one of the most wicked cities of the Roman Empire. City worshipped many pagan gods, but the chief deity was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Her temple was located on the top of Acrocorinth and was the center of sacred prostitution. That varied uh, from time to time. It was more or less, but uh, prostitution was often involved with these temple worship. Uh, sexual immorality was often involved, and we'll see that that's one of Paul's objections. That's his chief. That's, that's one of his chief. That's his chief objection. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10 about Corinthians going to the pagan temples. We'll study that in some detail because of the sexual immorality that went on there. So it abounded at Corinth. Uh, you know, I could show you a slides of, 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 the, of sidewalks in Corinth where people have carved out, carved out uh, uh, advertisements for brothels to go to, you know, here's the, here's the local brothel, go here. So a very, very wicked city, and therefore Christians, you know, stand out in a place like that. Those are some stones that they think are left from the Temple of Aphrodite, but there's not, it's mostly been destroyed. Uh, let me go back and I'll start it here. Uh, let's talk now about Paul's contacts with the church. We know that Paul established this church. It's very clear he mentions it in the several locations. And, of course, we know it from the book of Acts. And this was on his second missionary journey. And I'm kind of showing you here his second missionary journey. Uh, all three of his missionary journeys start from the city of Antioch. The first missionary journey is Acts 13 and 14 that he begins in Antioch. And the second missionary journey also starts from Antioch. And the first journey is, uh, the first thing he does, he, it says in the book of Acts, is he goes through Syria and Cilicia. That's this area here, strengthening churches there. So these are churches that are already established. Paul is revisiting them. He continues on. He goes to, uh, to Derby and then to Lystra. This is where he picks up Timothy and adds Timothy to his team, his missionary team. So at this point, it is uh, Paul and Silas who start out from Antioch, and now he picks up Timothy. And they're in the province of Galatia. They're revisiting the churches Paul established on his first missionary journey. On his first missionary journey, Paul went into the area of Galatia there, as you can see on the map, this... Uh, these lines here, Galatia goes way up here, but it comes all the way down here into the south. And Paul was in Antioch, 
of Pisidia. Pisidia is just a geographical name. Iconium, Derby, and Lystra, those cities are mentioned in Acts 13 and 14. And there he established churches. And now he's going back, revisiting them. And it says that in chapter 16, his companions, they revisited the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Then Paul's plan is he's going to go to Ephesus. Now, why Ephesus? Well, you've done Galatia. The big, big city in this whole place is Ephesus. Ephesus Ephesus is over here on the coast. It's the capital of the province of Asia, a very important Roman province. So Paul's, Paul's policy is to try to evangelize, you know, major cities, big cities, if he can. So he obviously wanted to go there, and he tries, but he is commanded, the Spirit says, the text says, he was kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So at this time, God doesn't want him there. So he decides, I'm going north up to Bithynia. Uh, But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow him to go there either. So he goes over to Troas on the coast here. This is close to the ancient city of Troy, not far away, but a different city. They travel through Mysia down to Troas, and there Paul gets this vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so, you know, Luke says, we determined that this is God's will for us to go over and evangelize the province of Macedonia. So they do. They go over to Macedonia. They set sail on a boat, go to the island of Thamothrae, stop there, go over to Neapolis, which is the port city for Philippi. And Paul goes to Philippi, Acts 16, that famous chapter. You remember? Uh, He casts the demon out of the woman and... He's put in jail, you remember, and the jailer and the earthquake and all that happens there. And then he goes over to Thessalonica and he has establishes a church there in Acts 17. And then he goes to Berea, you remember, and uh, establishes a church there. And then uh, he goes down to Athens. Um, And finally, he goes to Corinth, Acts 18.1. So I say this is around the fall of A.D. 50, and he spends, according to the book of Acts, 18 months, a year and a half, in the city of Corinth. Uh, Here's Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, we just saw. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So the emperor Claudius, in the year A.D. 49, had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. They had to leave the city. So Aquila and Priscilla leave Rome, and they come to Corinth. Uh, Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. That was that tent making, maybe in conjunction with the upcoming Isthmian Games. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, remember I said that on this 
missionary journey. Silas and Timothy started out in Antioch. He picked up Timothy at uh, Lystra, and then he picks up Luke somewhere around Troas. At least we, we're pretty sure of that. So now we have Luke too. Luke is narrating this. And Luke is with Paul. And Silas and Timothy have been left behind from Macedonia. That's the churches like a Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. So Paul evangelized these churches, but he would leave people usually behind to stay with the church, help them along. So now they come to him and they probably bring him a gift, a financial gift, because it says um, when Silas and Timothy came, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember Philippians 4 says that on a couple of occasions, the, the, it says, no one actually helped me financially, but you Philippians. When I, when I left Macedonia, you were the church that helped me. And so uh, apparently he got some money, so he, was not, he didn't have to work with his hands during the week. He could just preach all the time. But when they opposed, when, when, but when, uh, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, I'm sorry, um, um, when, they, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, this is the synagogue people, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now I'm, I will go to the Gentiles. So remember, Paul, when he went to a city, he would try to go to the synagogue, preach to the Jews and Gentiles who would come, and then he would go to the Gentiles if they refused to accept him. He left the synagogue, verse 7, and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler in his entire household, believed in the Lord. Many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. I'm with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have, I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in the city for a year and a half. So that's where we get the 18 months. And then what happens next, <clears throat> when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. That's that Bema we talked about. So we know this man Gallio very well, very well from history. He's a very, very well-known Roman. Uh, he's the brother of a very famous man named Seneca. So he is made the governor, the proconsul of Achaia, and Corinth is the capital, in July of AD 51. So we think that Paul probably arrived in the fall of AD 50, but then in the spring of AD 51, the Jews, seeing a new proconsul, apparently decided, okay, let's see if we can get this Roman to to attack, to get rid of Paul. Because they say, they said, this man is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, of course, that's probably, you might think about that. Is that going to appeal to a Roman? Uh, well, it doesn't. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some mere misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reason for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. 
crowd then turned and beat Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, uh, turned on the synagogue and beat him in front of the proconsul. Gallio showed no concern. Most uh, people who study this say that why did Luke record this? Because it showed, it kind of it gives Roman approval to what Paul was doing in the sense the Romans at this point, the Roman government, did not condemn Paul. They just looked upon this Christian thing, whatever it is, as kind of a fight among Jews. This is just some sort of inter-religious fight. We're not getting involved in it. Uh, and so they... That means Paul is not going to face opposition here. Now, he does face, remember, in, in, in Philippians, in, in Acts 16, in Philippi, the local authorities put him, tried to put him in jail. They did put him in jail. <laughs> so that doesn't mean he was out of the woods, but it just meant that here's a high Roman official. He's not going to, at this point, persecute Christians. That's coming, especially in the second century. Well, then uh, I say Paul's B here. Paul sailed from Corinth in the spring of page 2, Paul's, or in spring of AD 52, with Priscilla and Aquila stopping briefly in Ephesus. So Paul had wanted to go to Ephesus, and now he says, I'm going. I've spent a year and a half here. Apparently the church has been established well enough. And he goes to Ephesus. He brings Priscilla and Aquila with them. But Paul wants to get back to Jerusalem. Paul left them in Ephesus while he returned to Jerusalem and Antioch. So he wants to get back there for the feast, we're told. And so he leaves them there. The people in Ephesus say, won't you return? He says, yeah, I'm going to come back. So he sails down to the port for Israel for Jerusalem, that is Caesarea. And then he makes his way down in Jerusalem and then goes back to Antioch. He greets the church there and reports on his second missionary journey. Well, then see, Paul departed Antioch on his third missionary journey in about 52-53, passing through Galatia and then went on to Ephesus for three years. So, he leaves the same way. He goes back through Galatia, visiting those churches that he's established. And this time he heads directly west to Ephesus. He arrives there and Acts chapter 20, verse 31 says he spent three years in Ephesus. All right. So we know Paul is in Ephesus now. He's established a church at Corinth. Now he's going to start corresponding with them. I mentioned here in D, a previous letter, now lost, was written by Paul dealing with the church's responsibility towards its sinning brethren. This letter is not extant. That means it's not known to exist. But its contents are summarized in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. So, we're talking about 1 Corinthians. That's the 1 Corinthian epistle in our Bibles. But it's obviously, and it's generally agreed by all Bible teachers and scholars here, that Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians uh, that's not in the canon. God did not put all of Paul's letters into the canon of Scripture. We only have 13, but he wrote obviously more than 13 in his lifetime. But these 13 are the ones God wanted the inspired letters into the canon. 
He says, I wrote to you in my letter, that's his previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. So that's a problem in the church, you know. Uh, what do you do with sexually immoral people? People are just constantly sexually immoral. Paul says you shouldn't, as a church, associate with those people. And he's going to deal with that again in 1 Corinthians quite a bit. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a case where the Corinthians are allowing a man to be in the church who has committed incest and is living with this, his, his stepmother. And they have not done anything about that immorality, and Paul's going to deal with that. So this is a big problem in, in the epistles in the New Testament. They speak a lot about sexual immorality. And one reason is because there was tremendous sexual immorality in the ancient world, in the pagan world. It was just everywhere. It was allowed. It was accepted. But it was, it's not acceptable in Christianity, of course, in the Bible. And so the writers of Scripture have to deal a lot with this. When people get saved, they come into the church, even today, as people come into our church. They bring with them their beliefs and culture. And those beliefs are often anti-Christian. They're not what the Bible teaches these days because our culture is more and more uh, different and anti-Christian. And so our job is to teach them and train them and show them what Scripture teaches about their lives, their conduct, their morality, and so forth. So uh, Paul writes this previous letter. And then uh, I mentioned that word then came to Paul at Ephesus from the house of Chloe. He says, my Brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So Paul writes this letter, but he's not, he's not, he, he, he knows a lot about what's going on at Corinth before he writes the second letter, that is what we call 1 Corinthians. He gets information from the house of Chloe, probably from Apollos. We know that because in the book of Acts, uh, when we talked about Paul's second missionary journey, we said that um, after Paul established the church at Corinth, he travels to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla. And then he leaves and goes back to Jerusalem and Antioch. And we're told in that interim period in the book of Acts, Acts 18, that a man named Apollos comes to Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla instruct him more completely, more, more fully in the Christian religion. He knows some stuff. He may already actually be a Christian, but his knowledge is deficient. And then he goes off to Corinth. So he's been in Corinth. And Paul is saying, now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you. So what Paul is talking about here is... Uh, <clears throat> I wanted Apollos to go back to you. My point is to say, Apollos has been in Corinth. He's back in Ephesus. So he's talked to the Apostle Paul. He's had this letter from Chloe. He's talked to Apollos. He's also received a letter from the church. It says, now for the matters you wrote about. So the church has written a letter to Paul. And Paul's responding to that letter in 1 Corinthians. He's received a letter 
perhaps delivered by these men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. 1 Corinthians 16, 17. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they supplied what was lacking from you. So some people have come from Corinth. They probably brought this letter. So Paul has got information to go on. Now he's going to write the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Well, I say F, about this time Paul sent Timothy to Macedonia, then on to Corinth, according to Acts 19 and 1 Corinthians, to insist in their problems. Timothy was sent to communicate Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus to the church, which means he would relay Paul's teaching and moral instruction on certain matters. Perhaps Paul hoped that Timothy would resolve some of the problems troubling the church, but upon hearing reports that the state of the church from Chloe's, about the state of the church from Chloe's people, from Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, he sent the letter we call 1 Corinthians. So there it is. There was that previous letter. He's in correspondence with the church. People have come over to Ephesus from Corinth. And now he writes the letter we call 1 Corinthians from Ephesus about A.D. 55. Now, as Paul was about to send this letter, um, remember we talked about he also urged Apollos to visit. Um, this is an important point as we get into the first part of the letter. He says, now I brought our brother Apollos. This is in this He's telling them in this letter, 1 Corinthians, that we're going to study. I strongly urged him to go with you, go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Now, the reason I'm pointing this up is it's clear Apollos had been to Corinth. He's back in Ephesus. Paul wants him to go back to Corinth. Paul has confidence in Apollos. That's important because when we get to the first three chapters, we're going to see there's a seeming conflict in the church about which leader they're going to follow. Some say, I follow Apollos. I am of Apollos. Some say, I am of Cephas, Peter. Some say, I am of Paul. Some say, I'm of Christ. I follow Christ. What I'm trying to point out here is that Apollos was not part of this problem. He was not going to Corinth and creating a faction there that followed him. If that was true, if he had something that was deficient about Apollos, Paul wouldn't say, I want him to go back to you. I want him to go back. So uh, Apollos did not want to go at this time. Uh, so the, the fact that there are quarrels in the church divisions over Paul and Apollos means that they had nothing to do with Paul and Apollos' relationship. They were all entirely the fault of the Corinthians themselves. Paul didn't hold Apollos responsible for these fissures in the community. Paul didn't think Apollos' theology was deficient. He wouldn't send him back. So I'm just trying to make that point before we get there. Because it's going to look like when you read it, Hey, Paul and Apollos, maybe you're at odds with each other. No, they're not. But that's just the way it works. Sometimes in a church, you can have leaders and some people rally around one leader 
versus another leader. Even though the leaders themselves are not competing, people will kind of see a competition there, and that causes problems. Well, let's begin looking briefly here at the first part of the epistle in the time we have. Uh, we have an introduction here in verses 1 through 9. Uh, there's a greeting. And, uh, uh, you know, Paul's letters uh, are very similar in how they start. They usually start with the name of the writer, Paul, and then he mentions the people who he's writing to, you know, to the Corinthians. And then he has kind of a thanksgiving, uh, uh, grace and peace to you, some sort of greeting that he has. And we'll see that here in 1 Corinthians because verse 1 will say, Paul, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, and verse 3, we see the greeting. So this is pretty standard stuff. So let's look at that, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. I mentioned here as we go through this letter, we'll find that the Corinthian church is at odds with Paul, their founder. They are judging him, as we'll see, and probably questioning his authority over them. I say probably because it kind of looks that way sometimes that they are doubting his authority. That really comes out in 2 Corinthians. It's a full-blown questioning of Paul's apostleship. But it seems like that is a little bit of an undercurrent here. Now, one of the sources of Paul's authority was he founded the church. 4.15 says, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So Paul is appealing and saying, Okay, you might have a lot of other people, a lot of other teachers, but, you know, I established this church. I'm your father, the father of the church. That gives me a certain authority. Another source was the fact he's an apostle. It says his apostleship is by the divine will of God. Now, we know that Paul claimed equal authority with the twelve. Uh, there were the twelve apostles, and then there is Paul, there's some question where other men apostles, that's a debated thing, but certainly Paul and the twelve. Uh, Paul says, for instance, in Galatians 2.8, For God who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle of Gentiles. That's in Galatians 2 when he goes down in Jerusalem and he says, I'm on an equal level with these people. I, I didn't take a back seat to these pillars of the church. So Paul claimed that he was an apostle equal to the 12 apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I saw the risen Lord. He appeared to me. So the apostles were specially gifted, chosen representatives of Christ. That's what the word apostle signifies, a special chosen representative. Uh, the Greek word, you know, the Greek word itself, apostolos, kind of means like sent one. But it's a very rare word in Greek outside the New Testament. It's only used a couple of times in classical Greek to refer to a person. But it's used about 80 times in the New Testament. Most people think the background for this, for men like Paul and the early disciples, comes from the way that 
this word was used to translate the Hebrew word shaliach. So the Jews had this concept of a representative called a shaliach who had, you know, what we might call power of attorney. He just had complete power to act in another person's name. He represented them. In fact, he had such power that he could actually uh, represent you at a marriage. He could have a marriage contract. He could, he, could, he could buy and sell in your name. He could do anything for you. He could slaughter the Paschal lamb. And so he was your representative. The, the Jews had a, a famous legal maxim that said, uh, the celiacs, the shiliac is like the man himself. Or you could translate that, the one whom a man sins is like the man himself. The apostle is like Christ. Now, he's not Christ, we know. But the apostles have special authority that no one has today. There aren't any apostles today, though some churches, some Pentecostal denominations especially, some will claim there are apostles. No, there aren't any people who, have, who were chosen by Christ directly as his representatives here on earth. They were here in the first century. They had a mission. One of the primary missions was, of course, to uh, oversee the development of the New Testament. Once you have that, you have God's final revelation. So Christ doesn't need those kinds of representatives. Now, we're all representatives of Christ. You know, we're apostles in a sense of we're sent to represent Christ, but we're not chosen by Christ himself with that kind of authority. But Paul was, and he's going to assert that authority here. He has the right to command their obedience. I say here to his own name, Paul adds that of a co-sender who was not an apostle, that is Sosthenes. Uh, he may have been the same Sosthenes who was the leader of the synagogue. In Acts 18, that verse 17, we read that uh, there was a synagogue leader named Sosthenes. Maybe this was him. We don't know. There's no indication that Sosthenes, I'd say, really had a part in writing the letter. This is a very personal letter written by Paul to the church. But Paul, when he writes his letter, will often mention in the, in the greeting people who are with him, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas. Eight times he mentions other people. It's just including those people who are with him at the time. Sosthenes is a respected leader probably in the church, if that's the same one. And the idea is he's agreeing with the contents of this letter that I'm sending back to you. All right, we're going to stop here for tonight at this point, and we'll pick it up next week here in verse 2. Thanks for coming.